Our sermon passage this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll be uh, reading uh, verses 3 through 12. It can be found on page 1188 or 1188 of the Pew Bibles. Peter chapter 1, uh, reading verses 3 through 12. And before I read, would you please join me in seeking the Lord's blessing in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are a great shepherd. And we are your sheep. Enable us by your spirit to hear your voice. That we may follow you and trust you. Will you preach to us this morning so that we would be able to take hold of all that you have promised and accomplished and will do, that we would not be tossed back and forth by thoughts of doubt, by the suffering and trials that we experience, that your kind and gracious hand would take hold of us. And we would cling to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, Reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Well, last week, uh, we took some time to think about Peter trying to squeeze two things together that sound like opposites, Uh, that you are chosen, select, and you're also 
an outcast, a stranger. Things that we normally keep separate, uh, Peter brings together and presents it to the church as a whole. This is your identity. This is who you are. And so as he moves out of the greeting to the body of the letter, what do you know? Uh, Peter's doing the same thing. Uh, He's taking two things that we usually separate. He's presenting it as a unified whole. What am I talking about? Oh, well, in verse 6 and in verse 8, Peter describes this church as rejoicing. That's not surprising. The church has many things to rejoice about. We know Jesus Christ. We have brothers and sisters. Some of us get to worship in air conditioning. That's great. We have many things to rejoice about. But what makes it a little bit interesting is he says that they are rejoicing while they are being grieved. That they're in suffering. They're in trial, and they are rejoicing. And it's not as if uh, Peter is commanding them to rejoice. There isn't this kind of uh, imperative or commandment force to what he's saying. This church is rejoicing even in trial. And I thought that was actually pretty challenging. Uh, As I was reading and preparing for the sermon, uh, I noticed... And of course, I'm going to talk about myself. Maybe it might relate to you a bit. That in trial or in suffering, I feel that I'm entitled to certain things. If I have a grumpy attitude, I'm entitled to this grumpy attitude. Look what I'm going through. Look what I'm experiencing. If when I am called to practice love, obedience to Jesus Christ, in suffering, I feel entitled to push certain things away. That's too much. As I said, I'm talking about myself here. But here, we are immediately challenged by a church, these believers in Asia Minor, who don't have as much privilege as we do, and yet, they're rejoicing. They have found that even in suffering and trial, they have reason to rejoice. And if that sounds crazy to you this morning, rejoicing during suffering, well, you need to listen to Peter. Or you need to listen to Holy Scripture. Because Peter gives them the full story of their suffering and trial. And he gives them a larger picture of salvation so that they could move towards rejoicing. And in suffering and in trial, that's what we need. We need a larger picture. Because if we don't have a wider context, our suffering will dominate us. That's, you'll only see yourself as the pain that you are experiencing. All of life will amount to the difficulty of the situation that you're in. It becomes the lens in which you interpret all of life. You relate to your family through your suffering. You go to work through your suffering. You talk with people in suffering. You come into church and you find your way into your pew defined by your trial. And Peter doesn't want that to happen. And so he gives a wider picture of salvation and in doing so, he calls us to do two things that we don't really like to do during suffering. One is to think deeply. Again, maybe maybe some of you do. I don't like doing that when I'm suffering. To sit down and to think deeply about salvation. Two, as as he says later in verse 13, 
fix our minds, set our hope on salvation. Many of us in suffering, we want to turn our brains off. And so we'll use the help of screens or uh, something else to distract us. Maybe you give yourself to your work, trying to escape having to deal with, I am in a difficult situation. I'm in pain. I'm in trial. And so Peter says to us that turning off your brain is not the way to rejoice in your trial. But you need to turn your brain on and think deeply about your salvation. And that's our two points this morning, thinking deeply about our salvation. And then this moves us to rejoicing. As Peter calls us to focus on our salvation, there might be some of you, I won't ask for maybe a show of hands, that are asking the question, well, how is that really supposed to help? So think about my salvation. Okay, I've believed in Jesus. His righteousness is mine. I can stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. And someday I'll be with him in heaven. And often we make salvation small like that. Because we often equate salvation with justification. Justification is one of the benefits of the gospel that deals with the problem of guilt. How are you, as a sinner, going to stand before a holy God? And justification says that by faith, we receive the righteousness of Christ. It's credited to us, and this allows us to stand before God. But when the biblical authors are describing salvation, justification does not exhaust the concerns of salvation. Salvation deals with all of human life, all human history. It not only deals with how you presently stand before the Lord, but your future. And so Peter gives us this larger, or maybe a full view of salvation. And I'd like us to maybe approach this with three categories, or or, or buckets, if you will, to put this in. Salvation promised... Salvation fulfilled and salvation consummated. Promised, fulfilled, and consummated. If you look with me at verses 10 through 12, we see that Peter is saying that uh, our salvation wasn't something that just uh, showed up. It's not entirely a New Testament concern. It's not as if after Jesus died... Uh, The disciples said, okay, our rabbi has been executed by the Romans. Um, How are we going to put a good spin on this? And this is actually what many, I'll do this in air quotes, biblical scholars suggest. This is what gives rise to the doctrine of salvation and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus was supposed to be a successful leader, gets executed by the Romans, and the disciples figure out a way to to take those, those lemons and turn it into lemonade. But this isn't what we find uh, in the scripture. This isn't how Peter is understanding salvation. He says, no, the, the prophets were preaching about a Messiah who would come and suffer for his people. And in his suffering, he would receive exaltation by the Father. That he would receive glory and be exalted as Lord of lords. Uh, Peter uh, is 
urging us not to fall into that trap. That salvation is a, a plan B of some sort. And so he appeals to salvation promise. That the prophets who were filled with the spirit of Christ were testifying beforehand. And so as we read through the Old Testament, particularly the, the prophets, we can see instances where the Messiah is described as being a sufferer. But he will, by his sufferings, receive glory. We can think of Psalm 22. I'm going to read some of it. Here's the sufferings portion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Well, clearly we hear these sufferings of the Messiah. will be pierced for our sins. Who will have uh, lots casted for his clothing. But in that same psalm... We also get glories. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. One of the glories of Psalm 22 that the author of Hebrews picks up in chapter 2 is that by his resurrection... And we're going to see this also in in Peter. That by his resurrection, Jesus has made a family. Brothers and sisters. Psalm 22 says that he will not be ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. But in the midst of the assembly, he will lead them in praise. And the author of Hebrews says, this is what Jesus is doing right now with us. It's why we don't have a worship leader. Jesus is the worship leader. That by His Spirit, He is present with us. Leading us in song, receiving our praise. Feeding our weak faith in the sacraments. Preaching to us and calling us to life by His Word and Spirit. And Jesus is responsible for bringing us into this privileged position. And this is another point that Peter is trying to make to the churches. The the prophets, David, it's referred to as a prophet in Acts, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they knew of a Messiah who was coming and would suffer and receive glory, uh, but they didn't know as much as we know, or as the, the church that Peter is writing to knew. They knew that the Messiah would come, they didn't know his name would be Jesus. Uh, They knew that the Messiah would come into human history and suffer for his people, but they didn't know it was going to be in uh, 4 BC during uh, Augustus' reign. Uh, They knew that the Messiah would suffer, but not crucifixion on a Roman cross. And so Peter is saying to the church, you know this. You are in this privileged position to have seen uh, the, the fullness of the gospel. 
That as the prophets were leaning forward, reaching in anticipation, excuse me, to reach for Christ, you get to look back and see that he has accomplished his redemption for his people. You have come to know who Jesus is. And isn't it kind of scary how that doesn't move us at all sometimes? And you ask a Christian, do you know Jesus? Yes. You know the Messiah? Yeah. You know the Lord of Lords, the one who sustains the world by his power. The one whom before every... You know the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. And yet, that doesn't move us. We are suspicious of this Jesus and suffering. We are uncertain that he is good enough in difficulty. And Peter says to the church what the prophets were longing for, or as we read in the Gospels, what Abraham longed to see, you have. Even the angels long to look into it. That's one of those passages that probably as I was reading it, you were like, angels? Where is Peter going here? Well, you think about it from the perspective of the angels. They would be with God in the Trinitarian Council as he would decide and make his decrees what's going to happen. But you also remember uh, Lucifer and the fallen angels. And in their rebellion, what does God do? He judges them. And the angels would have witnessed this judgment. But then humanity comes into a fallen state. And so if you're an angel, you're expecting judgment. This is how it works. You go against a holy God, you get judged, but then they would hear or see God's grace. This would be a new thing for angels. How is he going to, how is the Lord going to deliver and save these wicked people? And so even what the angels desire to look into church, you know. And it is knowing this salvation, fixing our minds on it, that enables us to rejoice in trial. You know in verse 3 that you have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus was not raised as a private individual, but as our covenant head. Which means in his resurrection, we move uh, from belonging to sin and death to being children of the living God. You know in verse 4 that you have an inheritance beyond this world that is incorruptible and undefiled. You know in verse 7 that Jesus will return. That at the revelation, the Greek under that is the apocalypse, at the return of Jesus Christ, you will throw off the shame, the mockery of this world, your wrestling with sin, the miseries of this life, and you will share in the praise, glory, and honor when Christ returns. Peter describes that event as the last time in verse 5. You know this. Salvation, in all its implications, friends, is what you must fix your mind on in suffering and in trial. 
Otherwise, you will lose heart. You will feel as if you don't have any reason to rejoice. You know what I found? Oh, sorry, I don't want to put you in suspense. Let me take a sip of water and then I'll tell you. You know what I found most terrifying about this passage? You could believe all of this. You could even afterwards come up to me and say, Hunter, I was listening to your sermon. I'm not sure about your understanding of that verse. You could memorize it. You could have all kinds of insights for Bible study and Sunday school about this passage. And yet, all of the wonderful truth of salvation can be placed in your brain as just helpful things to know. Right next to look both ways before crossing the street, wear your seatbelt, things that are helpful to know, but things that won't cause you to rejoice in suffering. And what I found so terrifying about this passage is we could have this privileged position to know salvation, to know Jesus, and yet when the fire of trial comes, be silent. Believe we have no reason to rejoice. To not be described, as Peter describes the church in verse 8, whom having not seen, you love. And the love there is, is not, you know, warm fuzzies. Remember what Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So even in suffering, they are giving themselves to obedience. And though they don't see him, they believe or trust in him and they are rejoicing. Is this not the description, friends, that we should be seeking for? Is Jesus not worthy enough that in trial we would be rejoicing? How do we do it, though? How is that going to happen? You might just say, yeah, that sounds nice, but what does that look like practically? And thankfully, uh, you know, Peter doesn't leave us in the dark here. Uh, so let's just... Maybe do a case study or an example. Uh, Look with me at verses 3 and 4. What can we get from verses 3 and 4? God is our merciful Father. He is responsible for our new life. Verse 3. Verse 4, we have an inheritance. And it's one that He has reserved for us. It's an appointment that we will get to. And in verse 5, we are kept by the power of God. And so we take that, and while we are in suffering and trial, we know, well, even in this difficulty, I am being kept by the power of God. When the, the trial or suffering or the lies of the flesh say, this is it for you. You're going to be suffering like this forever. This is all of your life. Fixing our mind on salvation allows us to say, no, I have an inheritance waiting for me. There's glory on the other side of this trouble. And you don't have to say, I'm not saying you've got to say that with a smile and a cheerful hop. No. But that's what you've been given to cling to. It is what the Lord has accomplished for you. Uh, when you are, are tempted to believe the lie, that the reason why I'm struggling is because God is against me. That's why I'm experiencing such pain. 
A salvation means, no, the Lord is my father. And like every loving father, he wants his children to grow and be strong. And he brings this trial so that my faith would grow. This isn't just uh, knowing salvation, but applying it to the pains and sufferings that we experience. And this is what you must do to have reason to rejoice. Another suffering lie that you might be tempted to believe is that this suffering doesn't count. It's not as bad as, you know, those Christians who are actually being beheaded for their faith. My difficulties are hard, but uh, this Christian has it worse. Church, suffering is not a competitive sport. It's not something that you have to... uh, I can only receive encouragement if my suffering is worse than this brother or sister. Because what this uh, Peter uh, writes to the church in verse 6, various trials. Uh, So it's not as if, if, uh, boys and girls, you, you went to Peter and said, I'm trying to live for Christ. And I'm being pushed out by friends. I'm not seen as as being worth friendship or cool or trendy or relevant. And this is hard for me. It's not as if Peter would say, you got to take that back and get some real suffering. But he would say, no, even in that rejection, you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Your faith is growing to see that Jesus is more precious than human praise. That Jesus is worth losing uh, this potential group or standing in some sort of social rank. Jesus is better. Various trials, friends, uh, means that God gets glory in the suffering of a difficult diagnosis. A pain or sickness that's wasting your body away. A difficult pregnancy. A missed opportunity because you are a Christian and I I can't go for this line of work. These trials and difficulties bring glory to the Lord because it shows that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than ease, better than money, better uh, than than, uh, the praise of others. Jesus is better than a nice, comfortable life. Parents. What a wonderful testimony that would be to your children. Jesus is better than what the world can offer. And that Jesus is not only worthy of our devotion in this family, where we gather over the dinner table and read his word, give thanks, go to church, but he is worth suffering. He is worth going through trial for because I am being guarded and prepared for my inheritance. Friends, I hope you know how desperately I desire for you to rejoice in your trials. Because this is what Jesus wants for you. And Jesus doesn't want you to feel as if while you are in the fire, you are alone. You are under his wrath. That you are being prepared for your your inheritance. You are being kept and sharing in his suffering. 
Will you believe that this upcoming week? When the fire comes, and you've got to fix your mind on something, what are you going to give your attention to? Will you go on about how difficult the situation is without making that transition, as we read earlier in Lamentations, but I will hope in the Lord because He has compassion on me. Or will you look at your Savior who shed blood for you? You have not given me reason to rejoice. Before I close, I'd like to just give you one tip on rejoicing. One that I found very helpful, but also very difficult. Peter is not writing to individual Christians about rejoicing. But he's writing to the church. We need each other. Both in suffering and also rejoicing. And so we need to have boldness to be able to share with our brothers and sisters where we are suffering. Where we need to be reminded of the fullness of our salvation. We need to open our ears to listen to our brothers and sisters in the faith. Call us to take hold of the hope that we have in Jesus. That these trials are temporary, but what we have with Christ is forever. Now I'm not saying you've got to go into like a very descriptive detail of all the things that are, are difficult for you. But you are not to suffer alone. We are not to rejoice alone. Because we belong to one another and to Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, we are so weak and you are strong. And so I pray that you would, by your spirit, give us strength, give us minds to think about our salvation, to take hold of what you have accomplished and promised, and that we would be moved to rejoice. That we would not be dominated by our trials, But we would give praise to you, our merciful Father, who has given us new life, has promised us an eternity with you. I pray this in Jesus' name.